All right, welcome everybody and welcome those that are here live and those that are on live stream. And we are going to be doing lesson number 15 from Master Plan for Life. It's on page 139, 139 in your notebooks. And I'll just quickly remind you as to where that fits in. It's almost the end now of part one of Master Plan for Life. It has 16 lessons in part one. This is 15. So we're almost there. And part one is seeking to answer the one question, who am I? To answer that question, it's got five sections to it, doctrine of God, doctrine of the Bible, doctrine of humanity and sin, of Christ, and then uh, salvation. We are in, you see the upper right-hand corner, the section on the doctrine of salvation. And as we've looked at the doctrine of salvation, uh, we've had two lessons so far. Uh, the first one was just uh, the fact that salvation is all of God, all of God's grace, all of God's initiative. And we saw that God chooses those that He is graciously going to, to save. He doesn't, He's not obligated to save anyone. He could allow everyone to go their own way, and yet He chooses to, to save some for His own purposes. So the fact that we are here and that we are children of God and that we care about the things of God and that we want to please God with our lives and we want to be used of Him, and all, those are all things that He has wrought in us. And so we have no ability to boast about any of that, and we are thankful to God that He has done this work inexplicably in, in our lives. Why me? Why not, why not? Did I deserve God's salvation more than someone else? The answer to that is, that is no. But we tried to show verse after verse after verse that shows that that is the case. Now that does raise questions for sure, and some of you have indicated, I'm still trying to get my, my mind around that, which is good. That means you're, you're thinking about it. I, I recommend a book to you on that topic. And I checked before I came in, we have two copies in our resource center, but it is uh, Chosen by God. That's the name of the book, Chosen by God. And it's by R.C. Sproul, R.C. Sproul. And Sproul has a knack for taking these otherwise difficult uh, doctrines and making them understandable. So I highly recommend that book. There's another one right next to it on the same shelf or a few bo uh, books down called Chosen for Life. Now that one's a deeper, and uh, you, know, you, don't, you don't necessarily need to get into that, but if you're somebody who really wants to wade into it, you have that one too. So we've got both of those, Chosen by God by Sproul. I recommend that to you. And then there's uh, Chosen for Life by Sam Storms. Both of those are in our, our resource center. So get at least the Sproul book if you have questions about things. I think that'll help uh, clear things up for you. So we saw in Lesson 14 that indeed the... Um, the salvation that we enjoy is all of God. And He is the one then that chooses, and then those He chooses, He gives spiritual life to. That is regeneration. We saw that word. And then those that He gives spiritual life to are then able to do something that prior to they were not. Because of our sin, we were incapable of responding to God's overtures. And that's why you will have people hear the gospel but they don't respond because they're spiritually dead. They have to be made spiritually alive. So you can preach the best sermon in the world, you can make the best evangelistic presentation ever made, and it will have zero effect if the Holy Spirit doesn't move on the heart of the individual. It requires regeneration, being made alive. So those God chooses, He makes alive at some point in their lives when they, they hear the gospel. That's your point of being called by God to salvation. And then, having experienced that spiritual life, you express that in 
faith and repentance. Faith being, I believe, in who Jesus is and what He has done, and repentance, I want to go a different direction. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of, of direction. So we saw those conditions then that are necessary in order to uh, in order to appropriate what God has done, choosing and regenerating, we believe and we repent. Having done that, you get benefits now. There are things that happen in the life of the person that does that. And those benefits fall into these two categories of positional benefits and, and practical benefits. Positional benefits, we saw last week, they are those that you have but you don't necessarily feel. You have them, but you don't necessarily feel them. And they are things like justification, we saw last week, adoption, eternal security. The Bible promises those. They are precious promises. The doctrines and what those mean that we saw last week, each of them are extremely important. They're things that you should think about regularly because it gives you uh, the security of knowing your place in, in, in relationship to God. But they're positional benefits. But now today, we're going to look at this other category, practical benefits. And when we say practical, we mean things that you put into practice, uh, things that you experience. These are things that you, that you do feel. So that is page 139, that top of page 139. Union with Christ. So God starts that, and here's the thing, God finishes what He starts. <laughs> and the Bible says as much. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.24, 1 Thessalonians 5.24, He who calls you is faithful and He will do it. Or Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says that, Paul says that, I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So God started the process with the spiritual life He gave you in regeneration, but then He doesn't leave you there. He continues to work in us so that that becomes evident in our lives. Now, this is called the benefit of perseverance. You persevere. Then. You, you live like you've been made alive. Sometimes people call this preservation instead of perseverance. Um, and I've, in fact, I think Sproul says in that book that I, that I recommended that he, he prefers preservation. So you can read what he says about that. I don't. Uh, I, I prefer perseverance. And here's why. Uh, preservation is, is, at least the way it's normally used in English, is more passive, that God is preserving you. Persevering is more active. And these practical experiential benefits are active. You know, you're not active in justification. God's the one who does the justifying. You're not active in Him adopting you. He's the one who adopts. You're not active in eternal security. He's the one that uh, secures that, guarantees that. But in these, the very category of practical experiential benefits mean, mean that you are active in those. You do participate in those actively. And so I prefer uh, perseverance, and that's what we have here. So again, that paragraph, middle of the paragraph, this means that genuine believers will persevere or remain committed in three key areas. And these serve as three tests of genuine salvation. So you see A there, like genuine believers remain committed to the Word of God. That's a doctrinal test. Well, then when we 
when we move on, you're going to see the other two, and it's going to have in parentheses what that test is. You're going to have these three tests, these three indications of whether or not somebody is, is a child of God, whether or not they are evidencing life, spiritual, spiritual life. So the first one is remaining committed to the Word of God, a doctrinal test. Genuine believers remain committed, first of all, when we talk about being committed to the Word of God, to the gospel. It means the good news. It refers primarily to the person and work of Christ, which we discussed back in section 4. Now, some have taught that a person who professes Christ but later rejects the gospel is still eternally saved. People have actually taught that. That you profess Christ at one point, but then sometime later you reject the gospel. They say, well, because you made that profession, you're you're eternally saved. However, the Bible teaches a genuine believer will never reject his commitment to Christ and the gospel. So let's make sure we're clear here. You know, last week we saw that there is such a thing as eternal security. But not everyone who professes possesses. So just because someone made a profession of faith does not mean that they were actually born again. And if sometime later they reject Christ and the gospel, it's an indication not that they were spiritually alive and now they're not anymore, it's that they never were. That's what the Bible teaches. In fact, look at 1 John 2.19. We have it listed there for you. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had, they would have remained. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. You see what it's saying there. It's not that you were truly in Christ and then you, and then you were somehow removed from the secure hand of God. John 10 that we saw last week, it's impossible to remove them from my hand, from my Father's hand. It's not that that happened. It's they were never in. But it is possible for people to profess, but profess falsely, uh, false professions. And you see them in Scripture, and you see them in, in life. So the gospel of grace, with no mixture of works, it means there's no mixture of works to receive it or to maintain it. But we will work. Even though salvation is not dependent on work, it's demonstrated by our work. Let me say that again. (laughs) Salvation is not dependent on our work. But it is demonstrated by our work. So we are saved apart from works. We went out of our way to show that. Uh, The Bible makes much of that. The basis of your salvation is not your work, but if you're saved, you'll work. If you're saved, your life will will look like it. So genuine believers are committed to the Word of God. That means committed to the true gospel. And it means we're committed to, in addition to the gospel, about the teaching about the person of Christ and His work, also to just basic Christian doctrine. Now next to that... If you want to, when we talk about basic Christian doctrine, we're talking about the fundamentals of the faith, the essentials of the faith. You guys have heard the term fundamentalist, perhaps. I would consider myself a fundamentalist in the sense that I believe in the fundamentals of the faith. These are the core doctrines, the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, apart from which you cannot be a Christian. So belief in the Word of God as His Word from Him and without error, is a fundamental of the faith. 
belief in Christ and His atonement, belief in Christ and His resurrection. Um, these are all fundamentals of the faith. Believe in His bodily return, as the Bible teaches. Fundamentals of, of the faith. And genuine believers remain committed to those. Now, you see these passages, 1 Corinthians 15, By the gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. Colossians chapter 1, Now He has reconciled you again if you continue. You'll know that that's really true, that you've been reconciled if you continue in the faith. Established and firm, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, top of page 140, both of these passages assume continual commitment to the gospel, but the phrases in those remaining committed to the Word and the faith. They broaden the commitment to include all basic Christian doctrine. If one rejects the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, he demonstrates he is not now and never has been truly saved. Now, notice that uh, for each of these tests, we're going to go on to the second test. That's the doctrinal test. You know, do I, do I believe the Word of God? And a true believer will, will do that. And that's the first of the three tests, the doctrinal test. And each of these three tests uh, cites passages from 1 John. Look at the next one here, B, that we remain committed to growth in godliness, the moral test, citing 1 John chapter 2. Then the third one, the social test, also cites 1 John chapter 3, and this previous one did as well. Now, they're all citing 1 John for a reason, because the book of 1 John, and its five chapters, is the book in your New Testament that's written for this very thing. It's written so that you may know that you're a child of God. That's the purpose of the book. In fact, when you get to the last chapter of that letter, 1 John, um, you get to verse 13, and verse 13 is actually the last verse of the entire letter uh, and, the, and the substance of the letter, the body of the letter. It's then got another eight verses, verses 14 to 21, that kind of sign off, concluding remarks. But the book goes through chapter 5 and verse 13. And there, John, who wrote it, says, I've written these things to you so that you may know. So this four and a half chapters that I've given you are about the tests, the evidences of whether or not you are truly a, a Christian, and they are not then the way 1 John 5.13 is often used. When I, was, when I was young, when I was a young adult, and I had just gotten saved, and I was taught to go do evangelism, door-to-door -door evangelism. I don't know if anybody's ever done that, but I did some door-to-door -door evangelism, bothering people. <laughs> and I was taught to take people through what's called the Romans Road, show them in the book of Romans that you're a sinner, that Christ died for your sin, this is how you receive Christ, which was all good and fine. But then if someone does receive, they pray a prayer while you're on their porch there or in their living room, then I was also taught immediately go to 1 John 5.13 and assure this person that they were a Christian. And show them that these things are written so that you will know that you're a Christian, so you have assurance of your salvation. But the problem is 1 John 5.13 is not doing that. It's not saying as soon as somebody prays a prayer, this is the deal. It's saying that if you were genuine in that and you were born again, now in your life you'll begin to evidence these things, commitment to the Word of God and commitment to growth and godliness. That's the moral test. So you've got the doctrinal test and secondly the moral test. 
1 John 2, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he says is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Because a genuine believer is a new creation, he will change the direction of his life. He will have a desire to grow in the knowledge of God and to obey him. If there's no desire to grow and obey, it may be because he does not really possess eternal life. Now, you say, man, there are times where I don't do the commands of God, and there are some times where I don't feel like doing the, the commands of God. So does that mean I'm not a believer? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, 1 John again. That's 1 John 2, but 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. That's what it says. So for you to sit there, or me to stand here, and to say, well, you know, we got to keep God's commands, and I've kept every one of God's commands since I was 19, and, and I haven't, and none of us has and, and will. So it says, if you were to say that, you're a liar. Uh, but if you habitually do not keep God's commands, and you don't care about it, <laughs> you're a liar. You really aren't a child of God, if that's the case. Uh, and that's why 1 John 1, 8 says what I said, if we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. But then that very next verse says famously, but if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what I tell people is this, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is not the presence or absence of sin. It's not that. Because both have sin. The difference is the reaction to it. A believer cares about it. So it's not that a believer won't sin. It's not that you might, won't, might not have times of prolonged, dry spiritual spells in your life, and you sin. But, but if you're a child of God, He will act in your life to call you back, to make you miserable, <laughs> to convict you. He may kill you, as a matter of fact, <laughs> it turns out, as, as we will see. Uh, and, but God will not leave a true child of God alone in their sin, and for them to be simply uh, at ease with that. So that's what we're saying here, and that's what the Bible teaches. So you've got the doctrinal test, you've got the moral test, and then you've got the social test. We remain committed to good works, and in particular, good works toward others. That's why social. 1 John 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possession, sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So if you know Jesus, then you care about Jesus' people within the body, brothers and sisters. And if you see brothers and sisters who have need and you have the wherewithal to meet the need, then as a Christian, because Christ loves His people, you love You love His people. That's an evidence of the fact that I belong to Christ. Those within the body and those outside the body as well. Galatians chapter 6, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. But then again, it prioritizes those who are brothers and sisters. So the priority in Scripture is very clearly that benevolence and social Ministry, or what I've, you guys have heard me call in the last few weeks mercy ministry, is prioritized toward the people of God. It's prioritized toward the church. 
but it can be expanded, do good to all people, toward those outside of the church, and especially in order to be a witness for Christ. And that's why you heard me say in the last few weeks in our State of the Church address that these are, um, these are things that we would like to do as a church, to have some of these mercy ministries in order to help people, but also to make contacts for the gospel. Now note that each of these tests then, the doctrinal, the moral, and the social, they, they reference uh, 1 John, as, as I said. But they talk about the faith uh, with, regard to, with regard to our commitment to the Word of God, the faith, as opposed to my faith. Now, I just want to make clear that there's your personal faith, my personal faith, my personal belief in the Lord your personal belief in the Lord. But then there is the faith, the content of what it is we believe. And that's what we mean by the, by the faith. So Jude and verse 3, Jude 3. And I say Jude verse 3, there's no chapter because Jude only has a handful of verses. But the third of those verses says that we earnestly contend for the faith. That's what it says. The faith once delivered to the saints. So the faith is the body of of doctrine. And, and if somebody does not, does not hold to those doctrines, then they are they do not have, they should, should not have the uh, security of saying that I am a child of God. And further, if people don't hold to these things, then as a church, for example, we should not enter into alliance with people who deny the Word of God or people who do not practice the, the Word of God. So the Bible teaches that we are to believe the faith ourselves and we are to cooperate, we are to ally ourselves with other brothers, other churches that, that do, do likewise. Now, there is the faith, this basic Christian doctrine, and then there's all kinds of other stuff that the Bible teaches that are not the, the faith. That is, they are not basic Christian doctrine apart from which you are not a Christian. But then there are other things that I call secondary or tertiary doctrines. They're not unimportant, they're just not as important. <laughs> right? I mean, which is more important? Um, the deity of Christ, that is, that He's God, which is more important, that or the mode of baptism, that you're baptized by immersion or by sprinkling, which is more important? Clearly the deity of Christ, right? You can't be a Christian apart from the deity of Christ. You can be a Christian if you weren't baptized the right way, okay? Uh, or the deity of Christ and, or let's say, the, the Bible as being inerrant. That's a basic Christian doctrine. And without the Word of God, then you can't be a Christian. But then there's, you know, speaking in tongues. And, you know, I, I consider speaking in tongues to be something that can really move you in a dangerous direction, but still it's not as important as, you know, the inerrancy of Scripture. Can someone be a genuine Christian and believe in and practice speaking in tongues? The answer is yes. So there's all kinds of those. And we need to understand that there is a difference between the faith and the content of the faith, these essential Christian doctrines, but then there are other doctrines. Those other doctrines become very important as they impinge upon the primary doctrines. And so don't dismiss those secondary doctrines. It's completely unimportant. 
Like, take speaking in tongues. You know, speaking in tongues or prophecy, which our Pentecostal friends do, those kinds of things, that can, if you're not very careful and often does, affect the doctrine of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. Does Scripture have everything that we need, or do you have to have some extra prophecy now going on? Do you have to have some extra message from God going on? And many people believe that. That violates what the Bible teaches about itself. So those secondary doctrines become important as they impinge upon upon these, these primary doctrines. All right, note the bottom of page 140. Points B and C, that is the moral test and the social test, are areas of perseverance where, as I said earlier, genuine believers may temporarily rebel, but rejection of God's Word, the first one, the doctrinal test, is not, is not possible. So three principles should be noted, though. First, believers who do not grow are the exception and not the rule. If most of your converts, if you're, a, if you're an evangelist, if you're a preacher, if you're a Christian and you're given the gospel, but you're given the gospel in such a way that people don't understand that they, they receive these wonderful benefits from Christ, but they also commit their lives to Christ. And if you don't give it in such a way that people understand that so that most of your converts end up being the exception, if most of your converts are the exception, now you've made the rule the exception, Right? In other words, if most of your converts say, I prayed a prayer when I was 9 or 10 or 15, but there's no change in their life, you're doing something wrong. You're not communicating the truth fully. Second, believers who rebel in these areas, though, have no biblical basis for assurance. It may be that the person is indeed a genuine Christian. Ultimately, I can't make that determination. God will, right? You can't make that either. What I can do is warn you and say, listen, man, you're not living like a Christian. And if you can continue to live the way you're living with impunity and without any care about that, you ought to be very concerned. And I'm calling you to back to the Lord then if you belong to Him. And I'm hoping you'll respond to that. That person has no basis for saying, yeah, I'm saved because I prayed a prayer when I was a kid. If there's been no change, you might be a Christian, but you don't have the right to assurance of that. And then finally, believers who rebel in these areas should anticipate, if you're truly a believer, God's discipline, and it could be very serious. For example, the members of the church at Corinth rebelled through disrespect of the Lord's Supper and the Scriptures warned, this is why many among you are weak and sick and a number have died. So when I say God will take this seriously and He may kill you, you know, so... For somebody who's rebelling, I can say, hey, I've got, you know, I've got good news. <laughs> you know, if you truly belong to God, then you will go to heaven. But in the meantime, he's going to discipline you severely, put you in a hospital, <laughs> something, or he'll kill you. you know? So how about you just repent and get right with God? All right, so there's the benefit of perseverance. And then top of page 141, there's the benefit of assurance, another practical benefit of being in union with Christ is this assurance that we have eternal life. There are three elements which are designed to provide the genuine believer with this assurance. These are designed to work together. All three of them have to be present in order to have a biblical basis for believing we're a child of God. The first is the genuine believer understands the promises of God to save and to keep believers. I mean, that's our assurance is, first of all, in what God has promised before it is what we evidence. And so the promises of God to save and keep. In John 3.16, 
in John chapter 6 and others. Because God promises to save and keep His children, genuine believers can gain assurance of their permanent possession of eternal life. But secondly, the genuine believer understands his perseverance to be a result of salvation. So as I said, under the benefit of perseverance, if you've been given spiritual life, then you live in a, in a spiritual way. Christian assurance is inseparably tied to perseverance. If one who formerly claimed to be a Christian does not continue in the true gospel, correct doctrine, a life of obedience, he has no biblical basis for believing that he possesses eternal life, as I, as I said. So this is, uh, guys and gals, this is less about looking to a time in the past where you prayed a prayer, and it's about looking in the present and your relationship with God. Now, in my case, I remember, as you've heard me say a few times now over these weeks, my conversion at the age of 19. When I asked someone who wants to join our church for their testimony of salvation, you know, I'd like to know what they understand about the gospel, what they understood about the gospel, and when they heard it, and when they responded to it. But if the person says, you know, I don't, I don't remember an exact, but I know I was this way and now I'm this way. <laughs> and I want to know, where are you right now? Because too many people simply rely on this thing that happened in the past, and there's nothing that's happened in, much that's happened in the years since. So am I a child of, of God now? And if you are, God is at work in your life. He began that work in you at the point of spiritual life, regeneration, and then He, he continues that. Uh, the Bible teaches that. First, or excuse me, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. Philippians 2.13. Philippians 2.13 says this. It is God who works in you, both to will and to act according to His good purpose. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you in order to will and to act according to His good purpose. God works in you to will and to act to achieve His purpose. Now, when you read that verse, and for many years when I read that verse just casually, you know, I kind of went over the words too quickly, and I thought the willing and the acting was, was still God's work. But here's how the verse goes. It's God working in you to will and to act. Who's doing the willing and the acting? You are. And it's God who's working in you to produce the willing and the acting according to His good purpose. That's, a, that's, quite, that's quite a thought, isn't it? That you've got this dynamic of God initiating, God working in us, but God working in us to will, to that is, to be willing, to desire, and then to act upon that desire. And, and that work of God, because we have been made alive and God continues His work in His people, then that should be evident in our lives, that God is doing His work in us to cause us to desire to obey Him, to will and to act according to His good purpose. And if you, don't, if you don't have that, then you should say, Lord, forgive me, I'm convicted. I see that I'm cold on you. I ask you to forgive me. I confess that to you. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to restore us into fellowship with Him. doesn't mean we, if we're truly believers that 
we broke it for eternity, that can never happen. But our intimate relationship with God has been affected by this. And so you confess to the Lord. And then you begin doing the things that, that the Lord says. So you've got the promises of God, you've got perseverance, and then the third uh, element of assurance is the Holy Spirit's inner testimony. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit convinces the believer of the fact that He is a child of God. But the Spirit always uses, now watch this, always uses Scripture to do that. God's Spirit uses the Scripture a believer knows as a tool to convince him that he possesses salvation. He brings Scripture to the believer's mind, presenting him with consistent evidence of his eternal place as God's Son. So it's not some separate mystical thing that the Holy Spirit does, but rather the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God and the fact that you've been made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit so that God's Word that the Holy Spirit inspired resonates with you. And what it says then about these promises then testifies, witnesses to you that, yes, Lord, I believe what you've said. I believe what you say about me uh, and my relationship to you. Now, all three of these, bottom of page 141, of these elements of Christian assurance are presented in Scripture as the necessary results of our salvation, our union with Christ. So all three have to be present if we're to entertain assurance. It should be understood. The first element must take initial priority over the other two, and that one is, again, the promises of God. In other words, before one examines his life or perseverance or the testimony of the Spirit, you have to correctly understand the gospel and its promises, and we should emphasize those. So again, if you, you know, wonder about somebody, and you guys may be sitting there going, you know, yeah, I wonder, I've got somebody in mind. You know, I've got a family member, I've got a loved one, I've got a friend who professes Christ. Are they really saved? Is so-and-so saved? Um, again, be careful about making that final judgment. If the person understands the gospel and they say that they have received Christ, then you can't make that final judgment. But, but they're not entitled to feel good about it. <laughs> they're not entitled to have assurance that if they died that very day, that they would be in the presence of God. They're not entitled to that. Because in order to have that assurance right now, these things need to, need to be present. All right, and then the last of these practical benefits is the benefit of sanctification. Sanctification has both a positional and practical aspect. The positional aspect is God has set aside all believers from the world and to Himself. Now, why do we say that it's sanctification involves the setting aside? Because that's actually what the word sanctification means. The word sanctification means to set apart, to set apart, sanctify. So a, the sanctuary, you know, uh, the idea of a sanctuary isn't, is the idea that there's a space that's set apart for something that's different from the mundane. That what takes place there is not, is not the, uh, your everyday activities. So sanctuary is set apart. To be sanctified means that, to be set apart. And the positional aspect is that God, when we come to Christ, when we are saved, 
when we are regenerated, when we come to the point of belief and repentance, then He sets us apart from the world and to Himself. But then there's this practical aspect that deals with the continual progressive change that takes place throughout the believer's life. In many ways, sanctification parallels the teaching regarding perseverance. The positional setting apart will be demonstrated by the fact that each believer strives to obey Christ in his daily life. Now, how does that happen? Well, by the Spirit, through His Word. Romans 8, by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. Jesus prayed in John 17. Uh, John 17, this is the prayer the night before Jesus is crucified, and He says, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. Now see the sanctify then again? Set them apart. By the truth, your word is, is truth. And when Jesus prayed that the night before He was crucified, guess who He was praying for? It's amazing, but He's praying for us, praying for you and me the night before He... Because He says there, at first He prays for Himself, and then He prays for the apostles, and then He prays for all believers that will come to Him through the message of the apostles. Uh, set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. I used to teach teens way back in the day, and I used to tell the uh, kids, the sanctify by the truth, set apart by the truth. If you're a Christian, you'll be different. By definition, Christians are different. They're sanctified. You know, because one of the, thing, you know, one of the worst things in the world for a teenager is to be different. <laughs> you want to fit in. And those teenagers who want to fit in become adults who want to fit in if you don't get through to them. So I'm trying to tell them at a young age, you know, you were, if you're a Christian, you were made to be different. Uh, so here's the, here's the deal. Uh, Jesus said uh, that the, uh, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And I used to modify that with the teenagers. And I'd say, you will know the truth and the truth will make you odd. <laughs> it will make you weird, okay? And from a worldly standpoint, Christians do look weird at times, right? And if you don't look at least somewhat weird, don't go out of your way to look weird, by the way, but just by virtue of being a Christian and having different values and allegiances and priorities, then that's going to look different. The things you prioritize for your time and your money and all of that are different. All right. The Holy Spirit encourages believers toward obedience through their knowledge of Scripture. He uses our knowledge to convict us of sin and challenge us toward obedience. So if one is to live this sanctified, holy, and obedient life, he must study the Bible, which is the tool the Holy Spirit uses to help him grow. Do you guys see us keep, we keep going back to Scripture? We keep, and the reason we keep doing that is because too many people separate the Spirit's work from the Word that the Spirit inspired. And when you do that, you become a mystic. You become mystical in your Christian life. you got the Spirit doing things apart from the world and giving you feelings and prompting you know, all kinds of things. And we're trying, to, we're trying to communicate what the Word of God communicates, that God has spoken, and so let us be guided by the Word that God has spoken. So sanctification is accomplished through the Word. Also, it involves our active obedience. Some people view the Christian life as a series of mystical experiences in which the Holy Spirit moves them. In that school of thought, the believer is always passive, waiting for the Spirit to move him to pray, to witness, to minister, obey. It's true that sanctification is the work of the Spirit, but the believer is never commanded to wait for some moving. He's simply commanded to live obediently. And you see a bunch of passages like that. 
And I'll take it a step further. You have heard me say that it's actually sin to wait to do the things that God's already said. What, what am I waiting for? To determine that it's the will of God to obey what, the Word of God? You already know that. So if God says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice and flee from sexual immorality and not be yoked together with unbelievers and purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, I mean, if the Bible says all of those things, then what am I to pray about? There's nothing to pray about. There's nothing to, there's nothing to wait on. You can pray, Lord, help me to do this, but not that I need to do it. That's clear already. So sanctification involves, uh, is accomplished by the Spirit through the Word. It involves our activity. We are not passive. And it involves a change in direction. Before a person comes to Christ, we're a slave to sin. But after God makes us alive and God saves us, our direction of life changes. From that point on, we separate from wickedness. We seek godliness. And so the believer separates from wickedness. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Top of page 143, the yoke in this verse refers to any positive tie or commitment between two or more people. A believer has no business uniting in a permanent way with an unbeliever. Now, let me just qualify that. You know, if you've, you've got people in your family that are not saved, it doesn't mean you have to kick them out of the house because they're, because they're not believers. Uh, but it does mean that you don't entangle yourself in things that represent their values versus your values in a, in a permanent way. Like, and even in a business venture, I would, I would add, if you were going to partner with somebody in a business venture, you know, at one point or another in that, it's very likely that the difference in values is going to show up. And so I've had to counsel people on this, Christian people who've had a very good partner in business. They've decided to you know, buy a place uh, that they're both going to run. And I've said, you know, get 51% uh, majority <laughs> rule on it. And, they, and, they've actually, and they've actually done that for, that for that reason. Sanctification involves separating from wickedness and from the wicked direction, the priorities, the value system of the satanic world system. And so that's what worldliness is in a nutshell, friends. Worldliness is fallen values expressed in the culture. Fallen values expressed in the culture. Worldliness is not just the things that the world does. Because sometimes the world does right things. Now, they do right things because they owe it to us, but they, we're not ever get any thanks. Because they live in God's world. They live in the world God made and the, the, moral, and the moral arc that exists within God's world. And they are made in the image of God. All of this is owing to, the, to God, but they don't acknowledge God. And so the world is inhabitable because of God's common grace to people. Even, and remember, common grace is grace given commonly to all people. Not special grace in salvation, but common grace. And so because of that, people can do the right thing. They never do it for the right reason, remember, but they can do the right thing. So I'm thankful that, that unsaved people still get married, for example. They don't do it for the right reason, for the glory of God, but I'm glad they still get married because marriage is still, even with a high divorce rate, it's still a bulwark against immorality, against uh, profligate sexual behavior. 
And the, the less emphasis there is on marriage and the less emphasis there is on fidelity, the more you have of the other stuff, right? So it helps. It helps society when people do that. Um, but they're stealing God's institution when, whenever, they, whenever they do that. Uh, so worldliness is not just what the world does because the world gets it right sometimes. But worldliness is fallen values expressed in the culture. And if you look at the values of Scripture and you're immersed in the values of Scripture, then you will be more equipped to see the contrast between godly values and worldly values. If you're not immersed in Scripture, then you won't be able to identify it. And you'll be like those teenagers that I used to teach, and they would say, oh, I don't see anything wrong with it. Well, yeah, <laughs> you don't just automatically see something wrong with it. You see something wrong with it because you compare it to something that's right. And so you need to be immersed in what's right. And you need to be consulting what's right, and now you can see the contrast with what's wrong. I think the one quote that I have given in 20 years at this church that has come back to me the most, by, by far, I just had somebody email me it today, I've had people who used to be here who email me after they left and say, hey, what was that thing you used to say about? And they give me sort of part of it. <laughs> but it's this one line, and this, is, and this is it. And it is, you will either consciously adopt your values from Scripture or you will unconsciously absorb them from the world. That's your choice. You will either consciously adopt your values from Scripture or you will just unconsciously absorb them from the world. The default position is the world. We are in the world. And if we don't have something to protect us from that, something that shows us the contrast with that, we will simply unconsciously absorb it. If you don't consciously adopt your values from Scripture, you will unconsciously absorb them from the world. So the believer rejects ungodliness, worldliness, but embraces godliness. And then sanctification is an element of saving faith. Some people teach that a person may trust Christ and be saved at one time and may or may not commit himself to obeying Christ at some future time. In this way, the Christian life is centered around two spiritual high points, salvation, but then some optional time of dedication. Now, that is, as I say, dangerous, but it's real. It's really something people teach. So let me show you that. And I'll explain. And those of you that are watching on live stream, this uh, chart, this one-page sheet that I have is in the resource section, the resource tab of your player, so you can get it that way, okay? But this is a book you see at the top called Balancing the Christian Life. And this book is written by an otherwise really helpful guy. He wrote a study Bible. He's written a lot of helpful books. So when I point out this error, I'm not saying he's wrong about everything. In fact, he's right about most things. It's Charles Ryrie. Some of you might know that name, Ryrie. R-Y-R-I-E. R-Y-R-I-E. We have some of his books in our resource center. And the Ryrie Study Bible is actually a very helpful study Bible. But on this thing, he is just following a, an approach to salvation that is, that is wrong. 
And if you're not careful, it can be uh, dreadfully wrong. And the approach is seen in that chart. You see on the right-hand side the chart, and he is saying, it's not this way. And then you've got the first chart. He says, it is not this way. And then you've got the cross. You see that. Now the cross is representing coming to the cross, coming to Christ, coming to salvation. So there's the point where you get saved. But you see it after the cross, there's that flat line then down at the bottom. You just kind of go along for some period of time, indeterminate, that may be a year, that may be two years, that may be five years. But then there, there has to come some point, separate point from the cross where you dedicate yourself to Jesus. So you receive Christ as Savior at the cross when you got saved, but then sometime later you actually dedicate yourself to Jesus. Now look at the one at the bottom where he says it is this way. That's, he's saying it's not that way, it is this way. But for those points, the cross, the flat line, and the dedication, you see that they're identical? They're identical. The difference is what happens after the point of dedication, he says. So what he's criticizing is not that first piece. He's not criticizing you come to Jesus, you receive Him as Savior, you have some period of time, indeterminate period of time, that you're not dedicated, but then something happens and you dedicate yourself to Christ. He's not criticizing that. He's saying that's the way it is. That's true. He's saying. But then after the point of dedication, you're not on this higher plane of victory achieved and you never sin again or any of that. But rather, it's going to be this continuing fight, kind of up and down. The trajectory is upward, he shows there. He's right about all that. So what he says about what happens after you dedicate yourself is true. You don't have this higher plane. It's going to be the fight of the Christian life like we're all involved in, right? The error is that both of those are wrong on that left side, this whole separation of the cross from dedication. When, when, did you when do we dedicate ourselves to Christ? When you come to Christ. And, and I remember as a young person, I remember as a young adult, a lot of the preaching and teaching I heard, there was just something nagging at me. There was just something wrong. The preachers were just begging for people to like follow Jesus, to like get, they're just begging all the time. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with this? And you know, I was just learning myself, and I'm, I couldn't quite put my finger on it for years. And then finally, through a number of books, one of which was a book by John MacArthur, written in the late 80s, called The Gospel According to Jesus. And that, that book is a life-changing book. It really is. It made, it made a big splash for good reasons. And he was taking to task this. I mean, in a nutshell, he was taking that to task. And as I read that, I go, ah, okay, that's what's been nagging at me. These preachers are begging for people to do things now. Hear me now. They're begging for people to do things now that should have been done when they got saved. You should have been committed to Jesus the moment you got saved. Because Jesus is not just the Savior. Jesus is the Lord. And that's why 
MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus, the subtitle is, is I'm doing this from memory, but is Lordship Salvation Biblical? Lordship Salvation. Yeah, and the, and the short answer to Lord, is Lordship Salvation Biblical? The short answer is yep, <laughs> because He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus means God saves. He is the Savior, for sure, but He's the Lord Savior. And so we come to Him and we receive Him as Savior, but we bow before Him as Lord. We commit ourselves to Him at the cross. And then that upward trajectory and the fight of the Christian life and sanctification and all of that starts. But you got a lot of people who were taught for years and years, hey, you trust Christ as your Savior, you know, and hey, praise God, you trusted Christ as your Savior back here when you were 5 or 9 or 15 or whatever it is. But you're flatlined, and I find that kind of comical <laughs> too, right? You're flatlined in your Christian life, not much happening. And at some point in the future, God, you have some, in the way they describe it in their literature, the people who believe this, and it's a zillion, believe me, it's some crisis experience that God brings into your life. And now you dedicate yourself to, to Jesus. A lot of camp ministry, a lot of camp ministry is based on this. And a lot of the camp evangelists, do you know what their job is? Their job is to get people to do one of those two things, either come to Jesus initially or to get people to dedicate to them, themselves subsequently. And so the evangelists are doing both of those, and they're getting people to make decisions. You guys have heard a while, so make decisions. Make a decision to either trust Christ as Savior or to dedicate your life, right? So that is uh, what... A lot of camps do. It's one of the reasons then we were thinking about, and, and if our families want to send the kids, I've got a good camp for our kids to go to. But honestly, a lot of the camps, man, they bring in these high-powered evangelists to, you know, their job is to get kids to walk the aisle or to get adults to walk the aisle and then throw a, uh, throw a, uh, a stick in the fire, right? If you guys have ever been to that, that's what you do to show that you've made a, a dedication. Uh, but it's, it's based on this. This thing has a whole long pedigree to it. But it has harmed a lot of people who think that they're truly saved because they prayed a prayer. But they've never dedicated themselves to Jesus. So in my preaching and teaching, I determined I would never beg people to do, ever, what God has told His people to do. It's beneath God. If we say we belong to Jesus, we want to please Jesus. My job then is to tell you what Jesus says. <laughs> and when I tell you what Jesus says, if you belong to Jesus, you want to do it. And I want to do it with some passion and tell you that it's really important and all of that. But I, I ain't begging, not because I'm above it, but because it's beneath, beneath the Lord. All right, back to page 143 then. People have these two spiritual high points, time of salvation, time of dedication. The separation is unbiblical because the Bible indicates saving faith itself is an act of obedience. And saving faith, in fact, is described as obedient faith. Remember, James says, if someone says, I have faith but does not have works, then what good is it? And that's what we have quoted for you at the bottom of page 143. 
I mentioned last week, top of page 144, the question James is asking is, can a non-working, disobedient faith save? His conclusion is no. Such a faith is dead. Like empty words, it accomplishes nothing. Dedication to obey Christ cannot be separated from true faith. True saving faith is a dedicated and obedient faith. Now again, there are times in the believer's life when he makes important decisions to dedicate himself more fully to his Savior. In fact, the Christian life really is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment process of dedicating oneself to Christ. What's unbiblical is the idea that dedication to Christ, here's the key word, is an option. It's not optional. (laughs) You make an, an initial dedication to Christ when you come to Him. And then as you grow in Him and you learn more about Him, you continue to dedicate yourself to Him. But it's not optional. Faith without dedication is a faith that does not save. All right. Next week, lesson 16. And I remind you about the homework. I haven't done that for the last couple of weeks, but there's the homework to prepare you for each of the, each of the lessons. And at some point here, um, I'm going to have to combine two lessons because we've missed, you know, had to miss several weeks for snow and stuff like that. And we took the whole month of January because so many people were sick. So Dr. Combs, who directs these classes, tells me we've only have enough weeks that I have to combine two of the have to do two lessons in one week. So I'm calling an audible right now. And that is, I said we're doing lesson 16 next week, but I'm not. So we're not going to do lesson 16. We're going to skip to 17. And I'm going to do lesson 16 in a few weeks because it's a relatively short lesson. And in a few weeks, I have another relatively short lesson. And I'm going to combine those two. So for next week, prepare to do lesson 17. Okay? Everybody on live stream? 17. All right. Thanks.